0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the November 11th edition of WarComp Academy Weekly News. I'm Renee Foles, a partner with Floyd, Scarron, and Kelly. Thanks for joining us today. Let's get started with our litigation report. A federal judge, George H. Wu, indicated he will sign an order implementing his tentative ruling. That The SB 863 retroactive lien activation fee violates the Equal Protection Clause of the U.S. Constitution. The scope of the preliminary injunction has yet to be decided. It may apply to just the current plaintiffs in the case or to all lien claimants subject to the mandatory lien activation fee. The tentative ruling agreed with the arguments that the retroactive lien filing fee violated the Equal Protection Clause of the Constitution, since it discriminated against one class of smaller lien claimants and in favor of a large lien claimant class, those who are exempt from the fee. The lien claimants must show that a governmental policy that purposely treats groups differently is not rationally related to legitimate legislative goals. The retroactive $100 lien filing fee specifically does not apply to any lien filed by certain large medical providers, such as a health care service plan, a group disability insurer, a self-insured employee welfare benefit plan, and certain other large lien claimants. The state of California contended, on the other hand, That the exempted entities are not major contributors to the backlog, and thus exempting them had this as the rational basis. However, the ruling noted that a backlog is a backlog, and if clearing it is the legislative purpose of the law, then it makes little sense to clear only part of the backlog. The ruling concluded that the court would grant the plaintiff's motion for a preliminary injunction and discuss with the parties the appropriate scope of preliminary injunctive relief. So what does this mean for California employers? Essentially, they have lost a great deal of the employer's benefit of SB 863, especially if the injunction will apply to all lien claimants statewide. Lien claim resolution was a major component of the bargain for provisions of SB 863. Additionally, a new WCIRB study noted another provision of the new law, IMR, had requests that seemed to be over three times greater than that uh, projected potentially eliminating any savings in administrative costs due to IMR and also potentially negatively impacting medical treatment costs. Employers have yet to learn how litigation over the words catastrophic injury which is an exemption to the AMA Guide's add-on ratings, will be resolved. As a whole, the employer economics of SB 863 seems to be getting rapidly eroded. The WCAB ruled that the home health care provisions in SB 863 apply retroactively to all dates of injury. Here's what happened in the panel decision of Mulford v. El Toro RV, Incorporated. In 2011, Clifford Mulford fell from a ladder while working for El Toro RV as a service writer. He sustained a catastrophic brain injury and spent several months in the hospital. After his discharge, he experienced residual left-sided weakness, decreased memory, fatigue, and seizures. At an expedited hearing on a claim for home health care, applicant presented a note from Dr. Adams, his PTP and a neurologist, that said, Home health care or a case manager nurse is needed to evaluate for ongoing home health care assistance. The work comp judge found that the defendant was not liable for home health care because labor code section 4600H applied retroactively to applicant's injury and that applicant had not met his burden of showing that his doctor had prescribed home health care. Reconsideration was denied in the Plano's split decision. The WCAB ruled that the language in SB 863 clearly indicates that the home health care provisions apply to all pending cases prospectively from the date the statute became effective, regardless of the date of injury. Accordingly, it was applicants burden to prove that home health care services were reasonably required to cure or relieve applicants' injury and prescribed by a physician and surgeon. The PTP's report did not include a prescription for home health care services. Instead, it prescribed an evaluation to determine whether home health care services should be provided. Commissioner Sweeney, in a dissenting opinion, concurred with the majority that the recently enacted labor code section 4600H applies to this case. However, she would have returned the matter to the work comp judge to develop the record. And now our fraud report. Drugs are approved by the Food and Drug Administration to treat specific diseases and conditions. While doctors are free to prescribe them for other diseases, drug companies are prohibited from promoting those other uses since they have not been tested by the FDA. A subsidiary of Johnson & Johnson was accused of marketing Resperidol for off-label uses, making false misleading statements about its safety, and paying illegal kickbacks. The investigation resulted from four whistleblower lawsuits filed against the drug maker. J&J has finalized a settlement agreement with the U.S. Department of Justice and 45 states in amounts of approximately $2 billion. As part of the resolution, a J&J subsidiary will plead guilty to a single misdemeanor violation of the FDA Cosmetic Act and also pay a fine of $400 million. The resolution also includes a five-year corporate integrity agreement between the government and Johnson & Johnson. But the consumer group Public Citizen said the settlement was too lenient. It says that Johnson & Johnson has been... uh, a status as a repeat offender, and that seemingly large settlement sums pale in comparison to the profits generated from their illegal activity. Global sales of Resperidol, for example, totaled $24 billion, which is 10 times the amount of their settlement, previously johnson and johnson racked up 2.3 billion dollars in criminal and civil penalties for various allegations of wrongdoing from 1991 through 2012 sutter health which operates one of the largest hospital chains in california agreed to pay million and implement historic changes in its billing and disclosure of anesthesia charges and services to its patients, insurers, and other payers. Sutter has over 20 hospitals in Northern California, including California Pacific Medical Center in San Francisco, Sutter General Hospital in Sacramento, and Memorial Medical Center in Modesto. The settlement brings to a close a 2011 whistleblower lawsuit brought against Sutter by billing auditor Rockville Recovery Associates. The California Insurance Commissioner joined the whistleblower action in that lawsuit. Insurance Commissioner Jones said that this settlement represents a groundbreaking step in opening up hospital billing to public scrutiny. The whistleblower lawsuit alleged that Sutter included a false and misleading charge in its surgery bills. Sutter patients or their insurers received three separate charges relating to anesthesia, including a charge by an outside anesthesiologist, a charge for the operating room, and a charge under an obscure code 37X anesthesia. Sutter often charged thousands of dollars for code 37X anesthesia for each operation. Yet the services covered by that code were allegedly already captured in the operating room charge itself, a charge in thousands of doctor- dollars. Sutter charged for anesthesia on a time base or chronomet- chronometric basis even when no Sutter employee, only the outside anesthesiologist, was present and overseeing anesthesia. Some hospitals also charge separately for anesthesia gases using code 25X. Sutter's contracts with insurers also included a clause allegedly to unduly restrict them from contesting the bills. The settlement requires that Sutter pay $46 million and correct their billing practices. The state will receive $21 million to be used to enhance the investigation and prevention of insurance fraud. Time magazine devoted a special issue last March to the problem of the lack of transparency in hospital billing practices. The investigation exposed hospital bills that sometimes include markups as high as 10,000 percent. A 54-year-old Pacific Grove man pleaded guilty to more than 30 felony and misdemeanor fraud related charges. Danny Jess Langley, was arrested and charged with 11 counts of premium insurance fraud, insurance fraud, 5 counts of using a false contractor's license, filing a false document, grand theft forgery, and failing to register as an employing unit. He was also charged with 10 misdemeanors, including 2 counts of failure to secure workers' comp insurance, 5 counts of contracting without a license, 2 counts of advertising as a contractor, and failure to observe a stop order. Langley also admitted to a special allegation that he suffered a prior violent felony conviction and that he committed felonies while out on bail. He previously has served time in San Quentin prison. In May 2012, he was again found to be without a contracting license and not having workers' compensation insurance for employees and using a false contractor's license. In July, Langley was cited again and issued a stop work order. Further investigation revealed that Langley made false statements to the State Compensation Insurance Fund to obtain a lower premium, that he filed a false document with the Contractor State License Board, he used a false contractor's license, and committed grand theft and forgery. The defendant also stole personal checks and credit card information from one homeowner while working on her house. Langley recently has been advertised on online Uh, bulletin boards as a licensed contractor with positive reviews. He used a state contractor license number, which was never issued to him. And in medical news, claims administrators often need to make reserves for lifetime medical care of seriously injured claimants. This task becomes more difficult as the pace of new developments in medical science rapidly changes the landscape of available treatment an examiner might expect even a decade from now. For example, a breakthrough in genetics described as jaw-dropping by one noble scientist has created intense excitement among DNA experts around the world. It is believed this discovery will transform their ability to edit the genomes of all living organisms, including humans. For the first time, scientists are able to engineer any part of the human genome with extreme precision using a revolutionary new technique called CRISPR. CRISPR has been likened to editing the individual letters on any chosen page of an encyclopedia without creating spelling mistakes. The landmark development means it is now possible to make the most accurate and detailed alterations in any specific position on the DNA of the 23 pairs of human chromosomes without introducing unintended mutations or flaws. The technique is so accurate that scientists believe it will soon be used in gene therapy trials on humans to treat incurable viruses such as HIV, or currently untreatable genetic disorders such as Huntington's disease. Last year, scientists at the University of California, Berkeley, published a seminal study showing that CRISPR can be used to target any region of a genome with extreme precision. Since then, several teams of scientists showed that CRISPR could be adapted to work on a range of life forms from plants and nematode worms, to fruit flies and laboratory mice. And in regulatory news, the WCIRB has now submitted the 2013 SB 863 cost monitoring report in conformance with the monitoring plan submitted to the California Department of Insurance. This report summarizes the WCIRB's initial retrospective evaluation of the cost impact of a number of SB 863 provisions. It says that indemnity claim frequency for the first six months of 2013 is 6.2% above the comparable 2012 frequency, which is significantly above the projected levels. It is not yet clear why there is an increase in claim frequency. The report also says there is a greater than expected reduction in lien filings. The greatest level of reduction is in liens for relatively small amounts of money. In 2012, the WCIRB estimated an approximate $20,000 per claim reduction on claims involving spinal implant hardware due to the SB863 provisions. Preliminary WCIRB data suggests savings of only slightly more than $15,000 per claim. SB863's reduction in maximum ambulatory surgical center facility fees was estimated to reduce those costs by 25%. This estimate was consistent with the reductions observed in this study. However, once IMR became effective for all injuries, IMR requests have increased significantly. If the higher volume of IMR requests are indicative of filing rates for subsequent months, the number of IMRs requested would be over three times greater than that projected in the WCIRB's prospective cost estimate potentially eliminating any savings and also potentially negatively impacting medical treatment costs. Approximately 75% of IMR decisions have upheld the initial utilization review determination, however. Early estimates of IBR decisions show 60% of decisions are favoring the provider for amounts significantly less than the IBR filing fee. Preliminary estimates of medical provider network usage in 2013 show that network utilization in the first six months of 2013 is fairly consistent with prior years. Last September, the DWC announced that it would merge the Goleta WCAB office with its Oxnard location, which is about 45 miles south in neighboring Ventura County. The announcement was met with outcries from some industry pundits and stakeholders. The Goleta City Council voted unanimously to send a letter to the department opposing the closure and requesting it be postponed until a city can weigh in on the decision. And the California Applicants Attorneys Association was not thrilled with the consolidation either. It has called upon the DWC to either reverse its decision or, at a minimum, to continue to hold hearings in Goleta. In an apparent change of direction, the DWC now announced plans to open a satellite office in Santa Barbara. The new office location has not yet been finalized, but is expected to open in December. DWC staff will include a judge, an information and assistance officer, and a secretary. Initially, hearings will be scheduled four days a week. Hearings will continue in Goleta through November 18th. Once the calendaring process in Santa Barbara begins, parties may request that cases currently set in Oxnard be transferred to the Santa Barbara facility. Attorneys are also encouraged to utilize Court Call, which is services that enables appearances by phone at conferences. Further details regarding regarding this rescheduling of hearings will be announced in the coming weeks. A new Cheswick report was commissioned by the California DIR to examine the different types of inspections that Cal OSHA carries out and the roles that they play in workplace safety. The study focuses on the three major inspection types in California, programmed, planned inspection, and complaint inspections and accident investigations. Programmed inspections cite substantially more serious violations and total violations than other inspection types. However, complaint inspections take inspectors to workplaces whose injury rates are higher. But the number of complaint inspections fell sharply after 1992, dropping from 8,000 per year to fewer than 3,000 in recent years. The drop was a result of a change in Cal policy from dealing with informal complaints that relied on a letter or fax to the employer rather than on an inspection. The employer was required to respond and to explain what it had done to abate the hazard. One out of five of these fax letter cases was supposed to be followed up by an inspection. Unfortunately, Calosha did not maintain records on the number of these fax letter complaints or or on the subject of the hazard in its computerized files. There was no way to identify if inspections were, in fact, conducted to verify the employer's compliance with the complaints. Cheswick concluded that Cal OSHA should maintain better records about the complaints it receives and follow up accordingly. California also requires that acute injuries that involve hospitalization for more than 24 hours and amputations must, along with fatalities, be reported to Cal within eight hours. Cal is obligated to investigate these types of injuries. Although most re- believe that fatalities are well reported, the quality of reporting of non-fatal cases is less clear. National data suggests that the number of hospitalizations is probably well above the roughly 2,000 cases reported to Cal OSHA in California. The implication is that there is a great deal of underreporting of hospitalizations, at least in the construction industry. The Cheswick Report concludes that the DIR needs to develop a system for identifying the hospitalizations and amputations that employers are supposed to immediately report to CalOSHA. Earlier studies of federal OSHA inspections showed that the number of serious violations cited per inspections fell by about 50% after the first inspection and more slowly thereafter. In California, the fall-off is not as fast and varies by inspection type. However, the results do suggest that it may be useful to put a priority on workplaces that have not had frequent inspections. The Cheswick Report recommends that workplaces in high injury rate industries that have not been inspected at all or not for many years should be identified and deserve some priority in programmed inspections. That is all of our news and our events for this week. Please check our website daily for news updates, <clears throat> for past editions of our news, and for much, much more. And please remember you can subscribe to our weekly news podcasts and our special reports using your iPhone, your iPad, your iPod, or Android device by searching for the Workcom Academy in your podcast software. Again, I am Renee Foles, a partner with Floyd, Scarrin, and Kelly. Thanks for joining us today. And please drop by again next week for more news.